He has suggested nuking Turkey. He's advocated legalising bigamy. He's proposed free vodka handouts. Yes, today we're talking Vladimir Zhirinovsky and his Liberal Democratic Party, and how one might fare without the other. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. But now, on with today's programme. Well, happy Easter, and how better to celebrate than talking about this particular bizarre individual and his, in some ways, equally bizarre organisation, the Liberal Democratic Party of Russia. Now, it's a common statement that it's neither liberal nor democratic, which is perfectly true. Arguably, it's not even really a party. After all, what does it really stand for? It's quite striking. Uh, it tends to be very, very well-funded in terms of advertising, and indeed generally, and we'll come on to funding later. But the thing that always strikes me is LDPR adverts tend to be, whether they're posters or video inserts or whatever, basically just a pale blue screen with LDPR on it. No promises, no statements, no manifestos, just LDPR. So... It's worth start, stopping for a moment and thinking, well, OK, what does it actually stand for? Now, if you bother to go and read its programme, and let's be perfectly honest, most people don't for absolutely understandable reasons. It doesn't look that bad at all. But then again, we, we should remember, that after all, that on paper, uh, the constitution that Stalin brought in was strikingly liberal. And I don't think anyone would really want to sustain that that really applied too much. So, yes, I mean, there are the usual tropes, restoring the greatness of Russia, protecting the Russian language, limiting the number of migrants, protecting Christians around the world. And what I always find particularly bizarre, not allowing more than 10% of negative information on the media, quite how you count, let alone enforce that. But on the other hand, there's a lot more that is actually quite straightforward and sensible and even, dare I say it, admirable. Building more roads, fighting corruption, developing Siberia and the Far East, which is a big angle, and in part precisely because this is really the LDPR's power base. And, you know, more to the point, proper pensions and proper minimum wages. And this reflects the fact that there is a very, very strong fundamental populism in the LDPR's message that, again, at times is perfectly acceptable, even if it never really says where the money would come from, and at times particularly barking mad. For example, it proposes that there should be created the Institute for the History of the Extermination of the Russian People in the 20th Century. I mean, not least... Is there really any great mystery? You know, if we're not going to ask who, who was it who was busy exterminating Russians in the 20th century? Well, there was Adolf Hitler and there was Joseph Stalin. But I don't think that's quite what they're getting at. The notion that, for example, all settlements around the country ought to be connected to the gas network before any gas is exported. 
Now look, the idea of actually connecting everywhere up to the gas main system that's a long-term uh, objective, and again, one can totally understand it. But before you sell any, before you export any gas, where is the money meant to come from? There's a, a great make way for the young proposal. Well, that's fine. It's worth mentioning Zhirinovsky is 74. Totally free healthcare, totally free education. Sure, but again, how is it going to be afforded? Deal a powerful blow to crime. Well, okay, but I don't think any political party is currently saying, eh, let's go soft on crime. But again, no real detail. There's even the suggestions that there should be in the nationalisation of the production of alcohol, tobacco and sugar, reduction of food prices. All illegally exported capital should be returned to Russia. Well, how? This is it. This is not a serious proposal, or a serious set of proposals, rather, in any way, shape or form. This is not being developed by a party that even wants to contemplate the possibility of ever being government. I mean, be fair to the communists that, again, they may be in many ways a fake opposition party. Certainly at the top of the system, they, they absolutely are. But nonetheless, they at least bother to go through the motions and try and create what look like real political party programmes. This is just a random grab bag of anything that think that it might be eye-catching and popular. It's incoherent nationalism, it's populism. And in this respect, given the extent to which the LDPR tends to always back the government and united Russia on any particularly important vote. You know, it's, it's relatively easy, given again also Zhirinovsky's own nature, to think of this as, let's call it, the paralunatic wing of united Russia. And one could just as easily think of it as simply as the, the cult of Zhirinovsky, and also just a plain vessel for opportunist politicians who may, for whatever reason, not make it in United Russia, well, this is an alternative route. It's interesting, there was a recent scandal in Penza, where the local branch of the LDPR was offering nomination to a single mandate constituency just to the city Duma, the city parliament, for two million rubles. But this shouldn't really surprise us, because it's long been pretty much an open secret that if you want to be nominated to the state Duma, in other words, to the national parliament, it's going to cost you something like 400 million rubles, which is, what, 3.8 million quid, really? And that's just to get nominated and get in the first time. Then each subsequent renomination for further elections is going to cost you another 100 to 200 million rubles. You know, this is not just a vessel and a political structure. This is also clearly a money-making venture. Still, for all that... It's worth noting that it has had successes. It has survived a long time. It has 39 seats in the state Duma that, OK, is pretty ridiculous compared with the United Russia's 343. But it means it's third only to the communists as well. Uh, but they, they only have 42 seats. And generally speaking, you know, it tends to poll quite well, especially in Siberia and the Far East. It's got two governors including actually one that isn't, isn't from Siberia in the Far East, the usual strongholds, from Vladimir, which is quite fascinating because the, the man who was elected, Sipyagin, um, he basically didn't even campaign, certainly not for the first round of the elections. He campaigned a bit for the, for the runoffs, and yet he unseated the incumbent. 
And that in some ways is part of the answer. That if you're unhappy with United Russia, but you're unhappy with United Russia because your lot is not good enough, that your life is miserable, your life prospects don't look good. You do not have, shall I say, an ideological problem with United Russia. You have a problem with non-delivery. Well, obviously some people go to the communists or, or other parties, but in some ways the Liberal Democrats is a way of voting United Russia without voting United Russia. It is the built-in protest vote party. And that is arguably crucial in its value to the political technologists. Now, obviously, we're coming up later this year in September to parliamentary elections. At the moment, the polls are putting United Russia at anything between 27 and 33 percent, which is not that good for the party of power. The communists are anything between 10 and 16 percent and LDPR between 9 and 12 percent. However, that sounds as if they're in third place, but their results tend to cluster at the high end. And the communists, frankly, at the moment, are clustering on the low end. So it might be that actually LDPR is, shall I say, second equal or maybe even second. Certainly the Levada Centre, which is the, you know, the, the best independent polling agency, is putting LDPR in, in the second place. And if we look at Levada's trust ratings, you know, Zhirinovsky as an individual, you know, however insanely bizarre he is, nonetheless is regularly in the top five. Again, the most recent top five was him, Putin, Prime Minister Mishustin, Foreign Minister Lavrov, Defence Minister Shoigu. Now, how far that's just simply because he's been around for so long that he's essentially a fixture is an open question. But it's worth mentioning that, that uh, Communist leader Zyuganov, who is likewise no spring chicken, no newcomer to the political scene, He's not doing anything near as well. Maybe it's just simply that if you say lunatic things, people think they can trust you because at least they know that you're saying what you think. I don't know. There's been talk for quite some time, though, that Zhirinovsky is ultimately going to go, going to leave politics. That actually is looking a little bit more serious and more plausible now. And he is, as I said, 74. He does have its known cardiovascular problems. Um, there is a suggestion that he's also suffering from, from bipolarity. Certainly, there does seem to be an increase in the number of, kind of bizarre exploits. Um, on Russia One television, for example, there was very recently a quite sort of high-profile case. He was on the talk show programme of the rather toxic nationalist and pro-government host Salavyov. And he said that, well... If the world is on the brink of war, then China's Xi, America's Biden, and our own Putin would have to howl like a wolf. And Zhirinovsky then went on to say, I will show you how, and then proceeded to howl for about half a minute. Even Salavyov was visibly cracking up. So it's a question of thinking, what the hell is going on? Is this just Zhirik being Zhirik, the man who, after all, also sort of proposed that Putin ought to be crowned as Tsar? Is it just simply he wanted to hog a little bit more limelight? Or is there something more serious? And perhaps more to the point, is he still doing it for the political technologists of the presidential administration? And one of the interesting things is there does seem to be a much less sympathetic uh, viewing of LDPR antics in the current Kirienka technocrat age. In general, I mean, obviously, this is all part of his shtick. He is the sort of the holy fool duce of Russia's politics. But 
These are, as I said, rather less whimsical times. If people want to get rid of Zurich, or if he wants to go himself, though, it's worth noting that from his point of view, the LDPR is in some ways like any typical startup. You milk it for dividend while it's running, and then when you feel you can or have to, you sell it off for as big a payout as possible. He's done very, very well out of his position. I mean, rumours admittedly, but pretty solidly based rumours, put his wealth... Well, look, just simply his real estate holding is meant to be worth about 10 billion rubles, or well, 95 million pounds, or uh, 130-ish million dollars. That's no small amount. Now, of course, what he could do is take the dynastic route and transfer the golden egg-laying goose to Igor Lebedev, deputy chair of the state Duma, head of the LDPR's faction in the Duma. Oh, and incidentally, Zhirinovsky's son, whose name was changed to his mother's to basically make it a little bit less obvious. Now, Lebedev, look, he's, oh bless him, he's done his best to try and be a chip off the old block. Um, I particularly was delighted by his suggestion that football hooliganism ought to be legalised as a spectator sport. Um, And he often does actually sport these quite fantastically ugly suits. But nonetheless, he's not just been mired by regular scandal. He is, to be frank, dull. And the one thing you can't possibly have for someone who's meant to step into Zhirinovsky's clown shoes is someone who's dull. So someone else would have to step in. And again, from Zhirinovsky's point of view, he would want either some kind of guarantees of continued revenue or else to, in effect, be bought off. Now, the LDPR is a party that is effectively bankrolled by the state. And therefore, the state needs to be okay with him and the party and so forth. And it does look as if, as I mentioned, the current political impresario, Kirienka, and in fact his usual rival, Duma chair Valodin, if they agree on anything, it's that at the moment the LDPR is, or perhaps more to the point, Zhirinovsky rather, is not a pretty good investment. So if he can't distract the population enough, if he can't control his own party enough, and things like the Furgal affair in Khabarovsk suggest that, and if he can't keep a a good solid vote share without additional influxes of money, then maybe it's time for something else. So maybe that would be an outsider. And this is why it's really quite interesting that rumours have arisen, and again, treat all rumours in this system with considerable caution. But nonetheless, the notion has been raised that Alieg Deripaska, billionaire, target of US sanctions, and I would say someone with a perhaps overblown reputation for being Putin's favourite oligarch, is being mooted now as a potential new head of the LDPR. Look, you know, from time to time... His notion, the notion of him being brought into politics has been raised. Um, it's worth noting that, I mean, he supported the LDPR as far back as 1995. And then he later drifted to, you know, well, out of politics, really. But in terms of his uh, affiliation, it was only in 2003, it was with Rodina, Motherland, this, sort of, um, again, another nationalist, but a little bit more authoritarian nationalist party. 
Nothing serious. He hasn't really been involved solidly in that. And in fact, Zhirinovsky himself in January said, well, in trying to poo-poo the idea, that Deripaska just isn't interested in politics. Interestingly, though, he also said the same about Prokhorov, another oligarch who found himself being roped into politics. And I'll come to his case in a moment. But why we might want to actually give this uh, rumour this time a little bit more of a credence is that he does seem to be cropping up much more of late, commenting on what we might think of as general political issues, things that have nothing to do with his own direct interests or his massive portfolio of, of, of industries and businesses and so forth. I mean, he, he has, for example, for a long time argued, he has quite an axe to grind here, um, against sanctions, and more to the point, arguing that people, Russians, who call for there to be sanctions against Russians or against Russia, well, that that ought to be criminalised. Now, again, as I said, he has a certain axe to grind on that, but it's been quite striking that this has been cropping up again. Um, he has likewise been, a, frankly, a regular critic of the Central Bank of Russia, and particularly on its uh, conservative financial policy. But he recently returned to the fray and was uh, addressing the um, CBR's interest rate hike, and he attacked it in an interestingly populist way, or populist language, as an attack on the income of citizens and the profits of business. Now, arguably, he might be more interested in the latter than the former. But again, the point is he chose to frame it in that particular way. And, I mean, he's actually also just made a very splashy call of late for modernising the Trans-Siberian Railway to become a new national project and particularly framing it in that uh, Russia can compete with China's Silk Road. So it's quite interesting. So you've got this very much more nationalist, national boosterism, and also populist dimension to Deripaska's statements of late. So who knows? And the interesting thing is the reason why he could be, if need be, parachuted into the LDPR is because we really have to note how far this is not a monolith and how far it is made up largely of a strange and mixed bag of sometimes ideologues but more often deeply pragmatic and self-interested individuals. You know, if we look at what happened, for example, in Khabarovsk, where the elected governor Furgal was removed on fairly blatant um, charges that were suddenly sort of dredged up from the, from the 1990s, which I don't know, may well have been true, but it was clearly that the state just simply went and thought, what do we have on this guy? Well, Zhirinovsky did nothing about that. He basically was perfectly fine. He, he grumbled a little, but essentially he let Furgal go by the wayside as part of his price for his continued support from the Kremlin. That does not necessarily go down well with the party rank and file, and perhaps more importantly, the people who really matter, which is, in other words, the party grandees, especially in the regions, you know, the ones who are actually really doing whatever political work is being done. So there are prospects there, there is some signs that even within the LDPR, there is a degree of... And sometimes it's kind of entertained tolerance. You know, it's like your sort of half-insane old uncle who you know is going to cause a spectacle at family gatherings, but still, oh, bless him. Um, and at times, it's actually a sense that, in fact, Zurich is risking bringing the whole structure down. Remember the essentially opportunistic nature of the LDPR, certainly the people who have risen to a higher position within it. They basically have bought their positions in most cases. They have done so because presumably they regard this as an investment, an investment in their futures, their political profile, 
or even just simply buying themselves the immunity from prosecution appropriate for a state Duma member. So they are going to probably approach Zhirinovsky's continued standing with the same kind of pragmatic investor's eye. So I think there is pressure from within the party to do something. Because after all, you know, what could happen? I mean, there, there could be some kind of political merger with one of the other various uh, sort of tame parties of the right. But given that actually this party does perform an important political role, they're going to have to keep it in some way, shape or form. It, after all, it soaks up, as I said, the opposition vote, the I hesitate to say loyal opposition, but shall I say the apolitical opposition vote, the protest vote that people don't really want to transfer to a real protest. It also, it's worth noting, soaks up some of the nastier nationalist, populist, nativist opinion in the country and gives it a kind of recognised voice and outlet. Without the LDPR, navigating the evolution of modern Russia's political psyche is going to be all the more problem- problematic. And at least some of the more extreme figures, you know, would probably drift towards more uncontrolled, extra-systemic, and even potentially violent forms. You know, the, the Boogaloo Boys and KKK of today's and tomorrow's Russia. So, you know, in this respect, here is the dilemma for the Kremlin. They need the LDPR. They kind of needed Zhirinovsky, but maybe less so. And frankly, Zhirinovsky himself may, may not really be, be up to it. I can't say how deeply personally distressing it is to say anything positive about the LDPR. But you know, I, I, I do think that it is part of the reason why Russia's path has been relatively peaceful. No, that, that's not in any way to minimise the wholesale violence of, for example, both Chechen wars, or indeed the continued bespoke violence meted out to Navalny, other perceived traitors abroad or dissidents at home, protesters, etc. No, 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 absolutely not. This is not a whitewashing. What it is, though, is to note that a multi-confessional, multi-ethnic state which you know, contains within the seeds of some potentially deeply toxic traditions of nationalism and racism, has largely navigated its way round the worst political outcomes that that could lead to. And as I say, in its own way, oh God, why do I have to say this? The LDPR bears some share of the credit for that. Not by what it did, but by what it is, by the fact that there is this body which is able to absorb, like a sponge, some of that nastiness. Now, the idea that Deripaska is going to take this over, well, who knows? It could also simply be a a side effect of the fact that, according to others, Deripaska might be being groomed as either a potential presidential successor, mm, not sure about that, or perhaps more plausibly, Uh, a potential ritual sparring partner if Putin stands in 2024. He needs someone against whom he can seem to be challenging and in opposition, and yet someone who's actually not going to be, how can I put this, oh yes, challenging or in opposition. 
So Deripaska could be doing that. He could be doing it on the basis of creating a new party. And again, here, there is the model of Mikhail Prokhorov, the other oligarch's short-lived civic platform for operation of 2012. That while it's still around, it still has a Duma deputy, you know, it, it's pretty much moribund. And, and Prokhorov himself sort of moved away from it, really, as, as soon as the, political, the presidential administration's political managers would, would let him. So, you know, we, we have a track record. He, he could suddenly create something. Um, he could, for example, still stand for the uh, Duma this September. And it's quite noteworthy that there, there is a, a virtual rotten borough. The Avtozavodsky district of Nizhny Novgorod, which is essentially a fiefdom of Deripaska's gas automobile corporation. Um, well, I mean, you know, th this has a single mandate constituency, which United Russia won in 2016 with more than 50% of the vote, 53% uh, of the vote, which means ironically that actually it is within the gift of the presidential administration if they really wanted to give it to Deripaska. So, you know, he, he could become a parliamentarian this year and then, yes, a, a ritual presidential candidate in, in 2024. Well, that's, I mean, that's a possibility. But if that's the case, then he's not going to be necessarily immediately handling the LDPR. And in any case, the word is that Zhirinovsky mortality pr providing is anyway going to stay in position until after the September elections. It will be just too disruptive to, to try and change things over in, in the next few months. And, and yes, Zhirinovsky, for all his many, many any flaws is at least a parliamentary election performer. But if he's going to go, look, the LDPR isn't, isn't necessarily going to disappear. It has a structure. It has a membership. It has local figures with their own standing, their own interests, their own power bases. And as I said, it fills a political niche. And since it is 99.7% funded from government, well then, really the presidential administration is going to have not just a say, but the final say on whether it simply comes under new management or becomes something different. And given how central Zhirinovsky is to the LDPR, even if they keep the same name and the same programme, you know, a different leader will inevitably mean, to an extent, a different party. So if it's not going to be Deripaska, who would presumably move it into a slightly more sort of regularised status, well, who else might it be? And this is the problem. This is why you've got people like Deripaska being brought into the frame, because there isn't an obvious successor. I mean, I mentioned Lebedev's weaknesses. Well, who else? I mean, there, there, there's a couple of 38-year-olds who are sometimes mooted as, as potential figures. One is Mikhail Dektaryov, who's currently the acting governor of Khabarov Krai, Khabarov region, um, He's a man who perhaps is best known for twice having failed quite substantially to be elected mayor of Moscow and for proposing the return of the imperial yellow and black flag. Now, if that's the best really that you're known for, frankly, that doesn't suggest you have a really strong position. But nonetheless, it actually is arguably a stronger position than that of Yaroslav Nilov, who is a state Duma deputy for a long time. You know, Zhirinovsky is basically his bag carrier. Um, and, and, well, in my opinion, a man with all the charisma of the supply teacher and really no one wants. Of course, someone else can be suddenly found if need be. 
It's amazing how quickly you can generate a, a personality, a cult, a credible standing when you've got the whole media apparatus on your side. But anyway, the key points I would want to make about all this is that, first of all, Zhirinovsky, I do think, I'm going to stick my neck out, and I do think that after September, within not too long, Zhirinovsky is going to step down or be pushed out of politics. But the LDPR is not going to go away. Now, without Zhirinovsky, it's likely to be a lot less splashy, but potentially more formidable. What if, what if, whether it's Deripaska, one of these um, striplings, or someone else, actually, dare I say it, wants to make the LDPR into a real party? What if it begins to acquire a real program? I mean, that might be quite interesting, and that is the real wild card. As I said, at the moment, there is no real program. It is, it is the vessel of Zhirinovsky, it is a vessel of safe and approved protest voting. So actually, they could find that they, they have something rather more dangerous, something a little bit more like the Communist Party, though obviously without the long traditions that really give the Communist Party its absolute backbone. And then what else? Well, whatever the Kremlin chooses to do with the LDPR, with or without Deripaska, will actually tell us something about their likely future strategy. If they want Deripaska to run the LDPR, it probably means that they want to make it and him more serious. They want to have a more serious nationalist party um, that will probably create a more kind of rational political system. Why would you do that? Well, probably because you actually want to make the, the parliamentary system more logical, more sensible, more credible, and thus more legitimate. And, and this is very, very much pushing out the, the, the boat of speculation, so, so treat it with, with that caution. But it's more likely, in my opinion, that that is part of the kind of preparations that you would make for an eventual departure of Putin from the presidency. If you are not necessarily planning, for, planning it, shall I say, but, but accepting the possibility, the inevitability that that will happen, you might actually want to just begin to make Parliament a little bit more credible, a little bit more real, because you might well be facing a future in which the presidency is not quite so imperial. Conversely, if they want Deripaska to do something else, or anyway, or if he's not in the frame after all, then what they might be wanting is for him to create a sort of, I don't know, nationalist businessman party. There's been others before, there'll be others again. Whereas the LDPR is still needed as the lunatic scarecrow. The place that absolutely all, all, the, all the nut jobs and weirdos gravitate to. And why would you do that? Well, you might want to do that, A, because you just don't want to do any kind of particular change to the political system. And if you haven't got a figure of the calibre of Zhirinovsky at the top of the party, you're going to have to rely on the party itself to perform the same kind of spoiler and jester roles. But it also makes Parliament and the political system it embodies that much more erratic and, more to the point, that much more unattractive. And that, in turn, legitimises the notion of the presidency as a stabilising force. While Putin remains in power, but perhaps is less visible, less capable of mobilising personal legitimacy, you at least want to make his position to be as strong as possible. 
So again, I mean, these, these, these last elements are very speculative, as I stress. And we shouldn't sort of push it too far, which is a sort of code way of saying you feel free to ignore me. But nonetheless, I think this, this is why what's happening to the LDPR is worth bearing in mind. It's a significant feature of the political landscape. And quite how Kirienka, Weiner, Valodin and co recontour it will tell us something about how they are seeing not just the next few months, but the next few years of the political system. That's really as long as I can bear to be talking about this rather grotesque political outcrop. So let's have a break. And then I want to just, again, talk about a few news stories which happen to catch my eye. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. So, welcome back. And let me just pick up, as I said, on a few news stories that you may well not have have noticed. And I'll leave links to the relevant ones in the programme notes. So... Znak, the outlet Znak, noted that the Interior Ministry, the MVD, is going to be spending more than a quarter of a billion rubles on new riot control kit, according to three recent tenders that were put out. And together these come to more than 4,000 sets of modern anti-riot body armour, including some that is a Sturmovoy, um, sort of assault armour for people who are really going to go in and, and tangle hard. And this comes on top, it's worth noting, of an order in March that was of about almost 100,000 pepper spray canisters. It's definitely, this is the sort of money that you spend when you actually think that you're going to be using these kind of things. Because after all, it's not as though the police up to now have shown themselves lacking in the requisite kit. And we should put this into another context, also that of what's going on with the National Guard. After all, they too have been spending money. They too have been spending money on, first of all, armoured vehicles, big slab-sided wheeled things, kind of the sort that you can trundle into streets quite easily. They've been spending money on conventional weapons, of course, and also sets of body armour. And also they've been spending money on all kinds of rather kind of exotic toys. For example... Uh, kits that will, essentially weapons that will bring down drones by jamming their uh, control sequences, largely making them come down to land where they can be picked up, grabbed, taken away, stamped on, or whatever. And you know, that's a particular concern. Why, why are you so worried about drones? Well, the answer is, of course, that drones take photos, and photos make for bad PR. So I think this is all part of their process of trying to ensure that in the modern uh, age in which everything is filmed, they will at least try and minimise the extent to which they allow unflattering footage to be out there of, of their particular misdeeds. What else have they been spending money on? Oh, particularly, I mean, I do love this. It's, it's a mobile wall. It's basically a sort of almost like tractor or, or, or similar uh, vehicle, which can then deploy a, a, a big metal wall, the sides of which actually slide out. So essentially, you can fill the you know an entire width of a street, 
And what's more, you can then drive your vehicle forward, push people back. I don't know if people have seen the film Soylent Green, but that probably dates me. And this wall also has a little uh, sort of step on the back so that actually your, your riot police can also ride it, peer through and shoot their rubber bullets or pepper spray or whatever through little sort of gun slits in there. Thoroughly modern take up of good old medieval technologies. And yet, at the same time as this, the Zhezhinsky Division, the first special purpose division, which is the interior troops, which is part of the National Guard, its main formation in in Moscow, and and a relatively elite one at that, has, I understand, not received the full allocation of new kit that it was expecting or certainly had, had requested. So from that, do apologise. Well, actually, no, I don't apologise at all. This is my little bit of wonkery. You will have to sit back and listen. Anyway, so I think from this particular wonkery, we can divine not just the obvious point, which is that the police anticipate that they're going to be in, especially as we approach September, they're going to be in for more protests and rough protests, whether it's rough from the point of view of the protesters or how they deal with it. But so too is the National Guard. And not only is the National Guard getting more money, continuing to increase its budget, but it's choosing to prioritise the public order forces that are going to be messing with protesters rather than the potential anti-coup forces, which is, after all, one of the primary roles of the Zhezhinsky Division. It's there to be the backstop in case, for example, the, the security services or the army try to seize power. So, again, it, in some ways, does it tell us anything we didn't know? Not really. But it does absolutely confirm most people's expectations that the state is gearing up to have a hot summer and autumn and possibly next few years. And it wants to be absolutely ready for it. And it plans to meet any potential protests head on. So unfortunately, we're going to see more blood on the streets. The next thing is not one report, but many Alexander Bastrykin, the head of the investigatory committee, has taken personal control of the case of a shootout in Novyevyeshki village near Moscow, which happened on, on the 30th of March. OK, what else? Well, Alexander Bastrykin has taken personal control of the murder of a social worker in Tatarstan, that case. Alexander Bastrykin has taken personal control of the alleged alleged case of negligence by officials in Ariol. Alexander Bastrykin, it happens, has taken personal control of the local investigatory committee offices in Lipetsk because of their unsatisfactory work. What else? Well, it just so happens that Alexander Bastrykin has taken personal control of the investigation of the death of a girl from St. Petersburg in an avalanche in Murmansk region. And trust me, so the list goes. Suddenly, Alexander Bastrykin seems to be taking personal control of everything. I mean, is he suddenly obsessive? Is he very, very bored? Is he actually the last man standing because no one's told us that everyone else in the investigatory committee has come down with COVID? Well, in some ways, I think that we should be instituting the Bastrykin Index. The more active he is and the more publicly active he is, more to the point, 
the more he feels the need to demonstrate that he is useful, effective, busy, and loyal. And he does that because he fears some kind of change either to the system or specifically to the investigatory committee. Now, one could link this to the rise of uh, Karalyov within the Federal Security Service, which I've covered in a previous podcast, Um, because Karalyov, in terms of being a ruthless, relatively efficient, frankly, pretty soulless um, person who's perfectly comfortable using investigations as a means of political repression, is very much operating in, in, in the same ballpark uh, as Bastrikin. So it could be that, or it could be broader. This is a period of considerable unease within the elite, a sense that there may well be changes or there may not, but you know, uncertainty. So essentially, the more Bastrikin is busy, the more that, that actually tells us that someone like Bastrikin, who actually has proven to be more politically savvy than I originally gave him credit for, But anyway, someone like Bastrikin is worried that changes might be afoot and he's trying to make damn sure that he looks as if he's going to be the sort of person you want to keep after any kind of change. That is therefore my proposal for the Bastrikin Index of Political Uncertainty Within the Elite. And on that note, I think I'll bring it to an end. Let me end by wishing you all a happy and peaceful Easter. Szczęśliwoj paski. And I will be back. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash In Moscow Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.